Before I entered full-time Christian ministry, I worked in several jobs, both part-time and full-time. I worked summer jobs, and I also uh, worked a full-time job uh, during the early years of uh, my seminary career and uh, during the early years of my marriage. And everywhere that I worked, both part-time and full-time, I encountered other people who were Christians, other people that I worked with, who also had faith in Jesus Christ, who told me that they were followers of Jesus Christ, just like I was. And especially when I was in seminary, that came up a lot because people would ask me various things about my life. And I would say, well, I'm a graduate student. And what are you studying? I'm studying theology. And so it's a very natural way to talk about whether or not somebody goes to church or what they believe. And so um, it's very comforting everywhere I went to encounter other believers in Jesus Christ. And you know in your own experience that when you meet a stranger who also is a follower of Jesus Christ, how encouraging that is. And how you often have an instant bond with the other person. Because both of you share faith in Jesus Christ. And so as we live in this world and as we move around in this world, as we go from one workplace to another, we encounter coworkers who are Christians. We encounter customers who are Christians. As we move around from maybe one neighborhood to another or another, on one part of the world to another, we encounter people who live near us, who also share faith in Jesus Christ. And that's because many people claim to have faith in Jesus Christ, especially here in the United States. It's very easy to find people who will say that they're Christians. And even if you dig into that a bit, you will often get an answer, you will often get a response to the question like, how did you become a Christian? When someone would say, well, I, I grew up in the church and I prayed to, to receive Jesus into my heart or to trust Christ or some language like that. And so there are many people in this world, and especially here in the United States, who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, who claim to have faith, just as you and I have faith in Jesus Christ. And in fact, the Gallup organization does polls of Americans frequently, and they poll Americans about many different things, but one of the things they poll people about is their religious background or their religious beliefs. And just recently, one of these polls came out. And they found that 41% of Americans claim to be either born again or evangelical. And those things typically mean the same thing. They mean they come from a Protestant church that preaches that salvation comes through faith in Christ alone. Now that 41% obviously is less than half of the population of America. But surprisingly, that number hasn't changed a lot. Over something like 20 years or maybe more, maybe 30 years since Gallup has been taking these, this survey and asking the same question, the number has remained pretty much constant. And during that time, the number of people who actually affirm that they go to church, the number of people who say, I attend church on a regular basis has fallen dramatically. But the number of Americans who claim to be evangelicals, who claim to have faith in Jesus Christ, has pretty much stayed the same over that period of time. Something like 20 years ago, it was 42%. Now it's 41%. 
Statistically, that's, that's really nothing. It's a very solid number. Because many people, especially here in the United States, claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. And as I said, I've had neighbors, I've had coworkers, I've had customers in secular uh, uh, contexts, work con- contexts, and I've had just acquaintances that I've met randomly who've affirmed that they have faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm sure many of you, if not all of you, have as well. Maybe you know someone right now, someone you work with, who has the same profession of faith that you do, who says that there was a time in their life when they trusted Jesus Christ as Savior and therefore became a Christian. Many people in our world claim to have faith in Jesus Christ. But many people who claim to have faith have no acts of faith to show for it. That is, if you didn't know they were Christians, if you didn't know they professed to be Christians and just watched their lives in a really creepy way, tracked them through their daily life, you wouldn't see any acts that seem to flow from someone who has faith in Jesus Christ. And I used to think that this was kind of an American thing. Here in America, especially in previous decades, the decades like when I was a child and before then, there was a strain of evangelicalism that believed in something called easy believism. And that is that all you had to do was raise your hand to say, I want to be saved or pray a prayer. And then you can deny Christ for the rest of your life. And those people, those people who believe in easy believism would say, you're saved no matter what. And so I thought this claim of, I'm a Christian, but there's no acts to show in my life, I thought that was a uniquely American phenomenon, but it isn't. In fact, this is a very common phenomenon. All around the world, in every era of Christianity, there have been people who claim to have faith in Jesus Christ, but have no acts of faith that flow from their claims to be followers of Jesus Christ. And James, the writer of this book, the one that we've been studying together, has encountered this phenomenon as well. He is aware that the group of Christians, the group of predominantly Jewish Christians that were part of the church that he was an elder in in Jerusalem, but now have been dispersed around the world, the people to whom he was writing, he is aware that there were people in those churches who claimed to have faith in Jesus Christ, but had no acts of faith that flowed from their claim to have faith in Jesus Christ. And in our passage for today, James takes up that claim. He addresses the reality that there are people who say they're Christians, but don't live like Christians, don't look like Christians, don't have any physical evidence to prove that they are followers of Jesus Christ. James wants to know and he wants us to consider, what do we make of people like this? How do we evaluate their profession of faith? Even though it may be orthodox and it may be theologically well stated, what do we make of people who claim to have faith but don't have acts of faith that flow from it? Let's look at our text and we'll begin to see how James 
raises and addresses this question from our passage this morning. In James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, James says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If, if one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. In this passage, James raises the question about people who have faith but no works. And at the end of the passage, he answers the question. Moving forward in the passage, the section that we'll look at next time, he proves his point about the people who claim to have faith but have no works. But as we dig into this passage and begin by looking at verse 14, we see that James, as he typically does, as he often does in this book, raises a question, a question for our consideration. And that question is this, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? This is stated in two questions in our text. What good is it? Can such faith save them? But the question is one and the same. And what James is doing here in this verse is addressing the people who have this claim. And he's telling us, first of all, that the value of faith without acts is questionable. That is, we should not take it on face value that someone who has an orthodox profession of faith and claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ and claims that they have put their faith in Christ for salvation, we shouldn't necessarily accept their claim to faith on its face. Rather, we should consider something deeper. In other words, he is saying it's questionable if someone says they have faith, but they have no evidence that flows from it. And notice how this question is phrased. There's a number of interesting words that James uses in this verse. The first thing I want to uh, point out to you and raise with you is the idea that James asks, what good is it? The word good is a word that means profit. What is the profit that comes from this kind of claim? And the profit that James has in mind is clarified at the end of the verse when he says, can such faith save them? That's the point. That's the profit that he's asking for. He's not saying, does somebody have faith, but they're saved, but they're not going to get anything in heaven. They're not going to have any rewards because they don't have any works. No, that's not the question at all. The profitability that James wants to know is not about eternal rewards in heaven, but it's about whether or not everyone who claims to be saved is going to get there. Whether or not everyone who claims to have faith in Jesus Christ actually has a saving faith that will rescue them from the day of judgment when we all stand before God, which was what James was talking about in the previous verse. He was talking about how the fact that we are all going to stand before God and give an account of our lives. Now he wants to know when that happens. Will people who say they have faith, but they have no acts that flow from it, will they in fact be saved on the day of judgment? That's the question that he is considering. And the idea here 
of uh, when he says someone claims to have faith. The word claims is, is simply a word that just means says. Someone says that they have faith. This is a profession of faith. And James wants us to consider then what the profit that comes from a mere profession of faith. Notice he says it has no deeds, okay? And I don't like the word deeds here in the, in the NIV's translation. What James is talking about here is works. That is something on the outside of a person that we can look at and say this is the result of their faith. This is the, the product that their faith generates. And so that's the question that we're considering this morning. Is faith alone, a profession of faith alone, enough to save a person on the day of judgment? And this is an important question, especially if you are familiar with church history at all. Because you know that one of the key moments in church history, when the Reformation began, was the question, is salvation by faith alone? Or are works necessary for salvation? James seems to be raising at least a similar, if not the same kind of question. And if we're going to come to a clear answer, we need to keep in mind exactly what his, his, he is saying and exactly what the scriptures teach about this important subject. And so there are many people who claim to have faith in Jesus Christ. But if they claim to have faith in Jesus Christ and there are no acts that flow from it, that claim is questionable at best. And as James in verses in the next two verses, verses 15 and 16, discusses that question, he sets forth an example. And this, the example is to teach us that without acts of faith, claims to faith are empty. That's the point of the example. That without acts of faith, claims to faith are empty. Let's look again at the passage and look at verses 15 and 16 together. Verse 15 sets forth the situation. James says, suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. The word without clothes is the Greek word for naked. And it doesn't mean someone who has zero clothing at all, but rather it means someone who has inadequate clothing. That is, for the season in which they live, for the place in which they live, they don't have the proper clothing to keep them sheltered and warm from the changing weather patterns around them. This person also is lacking in daily food. That means there are days in their lives where they go without meals. This is obviously describing someone who is very, very poor. Many people in the Bible were poor in a subsistence way. That is to say, they had enough food and clothing for today. They had maybe one garment, but it was an adequate garment. It was one that would help them for the season that they were in to keep warm. And they had enough food to provide for themselves and for their families for today and maybe tomorrow. But they didn't have money in the bank. They weren't, they weren't uh, more settled. They weren't middle class like we would use in terms of our language. James here is describing a different kind of poverty. James here is describing a kind of poverty that we would associate with homelessness. Someone who is unemployed and has no income. And because they have no income, they have inadequate clothing. 
and they don't know where their next meal is going to come from or when that next meal is going to arrive. This is someone who is in deep, deep trouble in terms of providing for their own physical sustenance. That's the situation that James envisions. Now we go into verse 16, where James brings home the point. And he says, if one of you says to them, go in peace, this is corresponds to the Hebrew word shalom. All right, peace, which is the typical greeting that Jewish people would say to one another. And James was writing to a Jewish audience. And so what James is saying here is, if you pronounce a blessing over this person, shalom to you. May you have the peace of God ruling in your life. And may a settled sense of God's love and God's protection be over you. If that's what you say, and you also say, keep warm and well fed. And so what's the point here? The point is, the person saying this, you and me, in context, recognize the need of the person that we're talking to. Some people have needs that we don't know about. And we can't read minds or know what somebody's going through. And so without some revelation of a person's need, we have no means to help them and we're not responsible to help them. That's not the situation James has in mind here. James has in mind here a Christian. He called them a brother or sister in the previous verse. And it's a Christian who is known to the people that James is writing to. And that Christian, everybody knows, is unemployed and doesn't have a place to live, and doesn't have the needs that they need to survive a day or two in the future. And James says, you see that person maybe at church, and you greet them warmly, unlike the favoritism that he talked about in the previous paragraph. We actually greet someone like this warmly in the Lord, and we say, may the peace of God be in your life, and may God provide for your hungry stomach and for your cold body. But notice the next part of the verse. This is what we say, go in peace, keep warm and well fed. But this person does nothing about their physical needs. So we know the problem. And we say things that sound like we care about the problem. But there's no act of faith that flows from it. There's no decision of the will to provide for the need. There's no going into my pantry or my refrigerator to get some food items for this person. There's no bringing them over to provide for their, to provide a meal for them. There's no giving of money so they can buy an adequate coat. We say good things, but we do nothing to help them. And then James asks the question again, what good is it? Again, he's talking about profit. Now, what's the point that he's talking about here? The point works in two ways to illustrate the, the issue. Remember, James here is talking about the fact that many people claim to have faith, but they have no acts of faith. And so when James says, if you meet someone who's a Christian who has these needs and you don't do anything to help them, where is the profit in that? What is the point? The point is, you can say anything you want, but words don't accomplish things. Actions accomplish things. And just like you may have a good um, intention behind your words, you may intend your words to comfort and encourage the person that you say be warm and well-fed to. 
And you may pride yourself in the compassion that you have in saying those things. But James says, you haven't done that person any good. You haven't helped them in any way. And I think James means more than just that you haven't helped them. I think what he's saying is, you haven't done anything for yourself either. You haven't backed up your claim to be a Christian. Because being a Christian means helping others. So that's what I mean when I say it works in two ways. One, it illustrates the fact that people can say whatever they want, but actions are what matters. That's the first thing this illustrates. But the second thing it illustrates is the kind of deeds, to use the NIV's translation, the kinds of acts, to use the word I've been using in this series, the kind of works that James has in mind. He's giving an example of the kind of faith that either is Christian in the way it responds, that person would do something for the person in need, or is not Christian in response. That's the point of the illustration that James gives. It illustrates how easy it is to say words that sound good and sound right, but how hollow they are without actions that support them. That's the point. Now we come in verse 17 to the conclusion. So James has questioned the assumption that anybody can just claim to have faith and they're fine. Then he illustrates the problem. Now he comes to the conclusion, and that conclusion is very simply this. So faith without actions will not save you. Remember, that was the question. What does it profit? Can such faith save someone? According to verse 17, and in fact, the way that this whole entire question is structured, all anticipates a no answer. Look at verse 17 with me, where James says this, In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Going back to verse 14, can such faith save him? When James says this, this kind of faith is dead, he is saying, no, it cannot save someone. It is not a kind of faith that will get you into the kingdom of God on the day of judgment. People can claim anything they want. But James's point here is that words without corresponding actions that flow from them don't mean anything. Just like words of blessing without trying to meet somebody's need doesn't help that person at all. That's the conclusion that James comes to in verse 17. Years ago, when I was just finishing, when I just finished college and was a newlywed and um, in my first early years of graduate school seminary, I took a part-time job at a hotel. And it was my job, it was part-time, so it was two nights a week, and it was my job to work what they called the night audit, which was the overnight shift. So my shift started at 11 p.m. and ended at 7 a.m., and I did that twice a week. When I took that job, of course, I had to be trained in how to do it. And so I trained in the normal hotel stuff, like checking someone in and out. I trained during the daytime with the people who worked then, but then I had to work some shifts at night with the man who worked the other five nights a week the guy whose full-time job it was to work that night audit shift. 
And because we were working at night, and often the hotel was quiet because people had gone to bed and things, not much was happening, there was a lot of time for us to talk. We would get our work done usually pretty early in the evening, especially when both of us were there, because it's normally a job that requires one person. And so there would be time during those eight hours that I was in the hotel for us to do whatever we wanted. And sometimes I would bring my books. I would bring my, my Hebrew Bible or my Hebrew books or uh, the systematic theology notes that I was studying. And my coworker started asking me questions. He started asking me questions about eschatology. And his questions were pretty specific. They were pretty detailed. They were the questions of someone who had some familiarity with the book of Revelation, quite a bit of familiarity, in fact. And so after we talked about his questions a little bit, I just asked him, I said, are you a Christian? And he said, oh, yeah, sure, I'm a, I'm a Christian. And I said, well, tell me about your faith in Christ. And if my recollection is correct, he said, well, I was raised in the church. And when I was a child, I asked Jesus into my heart, which, by the way, is not a biblical way to describe salvation, but it's the way many evangelicals describe their profession of faith. And I believe that's what he said. I asked Jesus into my heart, and so I became a Christian. I said, well, that's great. Where do you go to church? Because I was serving at a church plant in the area. And he said, well, I don't, I don't go to church. And I said, well, um, it seems pretty clear that you read the Bible because you know all these questions about eschatology. He's like, no, not really. I read books about the Bible. I read the, great, the late, great planet Earth by Hal Lindsey, but I don't actually read the Bible itself. And the more I got to know this man, the more I found out that he was someone who was living with a woman with whom he had two children. And her parents were Christians, and her parents constantly were trying to get them to go to church and constantly trying to get them to get married. But this man, though that he had asked his girlfriend to marry him, so they were engaged, he actually had never, they never set a date for their wedding, and he was in no hurry to get married. And it was kind of annoying to him that his future in-laws wanted him to go to church all the time. And if you look at anything that might characterize the life of a Christian, an appetite for the word of God, a desire to live according to the ways of Christ. This man had none of those evidences in his life. He and his girlfriend both professed to be believers in Jesus Christ. They made the claim to have faith in Jesus Christ. But there were no works that would accompany that claim. There were no acts of faith that should flow from a genuine faith in Jesus Christ. And so if we compare what this man said, my, my coworker, to this passage of Scripture, the question we would ask ourselves is, is this going to profit him on the day of judgment? Can the kind of faith that he says he has and that he thinks he has and that millions of evangelicals, especially here in the United States, claim to have and that some people who grew up in this church or made a profession of faith in this church or were baptized in this church, the same kind of claim that they would make, is it going to profit them on the day of judgment? Is that kind of faith going to save them when they stand before God? Most evangelicals, would say yes, 
They would say, if you have faith in Jesus, that's all that matters. And because the Bible teaches once saved, always saved, if you have faith in Jesus, you can do anything you want. You can change your beliefs, but you're good. You're in. You're a Christian. That's what many evangelicals believe. And that's what they think. But James here, and not just James. In fact, every part of the New Testament teaches that while justification While salvation is by faith alone, James has talked about the importance of faith in saving in chapter 1. While the Bible affirms that faith alone is what saves a person, the Bible also affirms that faith that saves is never alone. I didn't make that up. But I have to say it because it really states the issue in probably the clearest possible terms. So let me say it for you again. While faith alone saves, the faith that saves is never alone. There are always intentional acts of faith that flow from genuine faith in Jesus Christ. And if a person claims to have faith in Jesus Christ, but there is no intentional acts of faith that flow from their life, James says, the Bible says, God says, and multiple passages of Scripture say that that person is not saved. That kind of faith will not save a person on the day of judgment. And so the point that we need to understand as we begin to look at this paragraph, and we'll come back to it next week, is today's big idea which is that intentional acts of faith always result from genuine faith. It's not the acts of faith that save you. It's not the deeds. It's not good works that save a person. Rather, they are the evidence of genuine faith in Christ, and that evidence always will be there. That's what James is teaching in this passage. And as we come back to it next Sunday, we'll look at it in even more depth. But For the moment, I want us to consider this point. Because again, in our world, there are so many who claim to have faith in Christ, but they have no evidence of spiritual life. Their lives have not been transformed. And if you watch what they do, you don't see any intentional acts of faith flow from it. And when we consider this idea that intentional acts of faith always result from genuine faith, that proposition and what James has said here sometimes seems to be in conflict with some other things that the Christian world believes. For one, some people think it's in conflict with the Reformation idea of sola fide, You may be aware that when the Reformation happened, it was described using five solas. The word sola means alone. And one of those solas was sola fide, faith alone. Well, this passage seems to, at least, undermine, or at least it raises a question about whether or not sola fide is actually correct. Is salvation by faith alone? 
And in order for us to understand what James is saying here, we also need to understand that there are streams of Christianity, there are strains of Christianity, there are churches that call themselves Christians who don't believe in sola fide. They don't believe that salvation is by faith alone. I'm talking here primarily about the Roman Catholic Church from which the Reformation happened. They believe that salvation is by faith, yes, plus works. And James's teaching here seems to lend some support to that idea. That yes, you need faith in Christ, but you need more than faith in Christ. You need works to accompany your faith. And so let's think through this together a little bit. The first thing I would say about this tension, this conflict, has to do with the reaction to the Roman Catholic Church, and in fact, any religion that says that you need faith plus works. And the thing that I want us to understand is that what really matters here is what the definition of works is. In the Roman Catholic Church, the works that must accompany your faith in order to be saved are things like baptism and taking communion and going to confession and confessing your sins to a man, a priest. And also getting married in the church, having holy matrimony. These are the sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. And Roman Catholic doctrine teaches that you must have faith in Christ and also jump through these hoops. You must also perform these rituals in order to be saved. But you and I have gone far enough in the book of James to know that James hasn't talked about any of this stuff. He hasn't talked about going to confession. He hasn't mentioned baptism in the book of James. He hasn't talked about communion or any of the rituals associated with the Roman Catholic Church. And so the works that the Roman Catholic Church says are necessary for salvation are not the works that James has in mind when he talks about how faith without works is dead. But we also need to understand and, and understand and think about what this means in conjunction with Paul's teaching. Because Paul taught in the book of Romans and Galatians especially, but in other places as well, that it is faith alone that saves a person. And if you try to add works to salvation, you pollute the whole thing. That also seems to be in conflict with what James is teaching here. But we need to understand that what Paul is talking about are not the things, they're not the kind of works that James is talking about. Paul is talking about keeping the rituals of the law, getting circumcised, and eating a kosher diet, and following the, the pieces of the ceremonial law that Jesus himself fulfilled. And so part of the confusion about James's teaching about works is a failure to understand the difference between Rituals and ceremonies created by a church long after the New Testament was written. And the good works that the Bible says accompany genuine faith. And it's also a failure to understand the difference between the rituals of Judaism, the commandments of the law that were ritualistic, and what the Bible says accompany faith. That's, that's point one. The point one is works mean different things. And if we don't clearly distinguish them, we're going to have trouble understanding the passage. Point two here is to understand that there is an order. James is not saying you get saved 
by doing works and having faith. Rather, he is saying that saving faith has evidence that flows from it. And by using the idea of dead, of death at the end of verse 17, when James says faith without works is dead, he's bringing up the idea of the difference between life and death. A living being shows evidences of being alive. A living being breathes. A living being communicates. You don't do those things to become a living being. They are the results, the works that flow from being alive. And so it is with the works that James has in mind here. He's not saying you must do these things to be saved. He is saying if you're saved, you will do these things because they accompany genuine spiritual life. And so as we close this morning, I want to talk just for a minute about what exactly are the works that James has in mind when he says that faith without works is dead. What does he mean when he says that if someone claims to have faith but doesn't have works, that person is not saved? And the answer to that question is everything that precedes this passage of Scripture. All the other things that we talked about as intentional acts of faith, those are the things that James is talking about when he says you need to have deeds if you have genuine saving faith. What I mean here are things like perseverance in trials. Remember James 1.12? Blessed is the man who perseveres under trials because when he has stood the test, then he'll receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised. To those who love him. A faith that works is one that perseveres through trials instead of giving up and walking away from Jesus Christ. The other works that James has in mind are trusting God through temptations to sin. Remember, that's what followed the passage on trials. James talked about how we need to believe in God and believe in his goodness when we are tempted to sin. That's the kind of work that James has in mind. Next, that was in uh, James chapter 1, verse uh, 19 and following. The third work that James talked about, the third, the third act of faith that flows from genuine faith, was, do, was hearing the word of God. Remember, he said, my brothers, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. And then following that was doing the word. He says, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving your own self. Someone who hears the word and doesn't do it is not saved is what he is saying. The next act of faith that James talked about was controlling your tongue in James 1.26. And following that, it was doing good for for widows and orphans. He says pure religion, the, the, the real thing, is someone who cares for the needs of other people and keeps himself unspotted from the world. And the final act of faith that James has been teaching us in this passage so far is not showing favoritism, either excluding people we don't like the appearance of or giving too much attention to people we do like the appearance of. James says that kind of favoritism is not compatible with genuine faith in Jesus Christ. And so what we need to understand as we close this message and as we think about what the scripture is teaching us, is that there are many people who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, but the Bible says, if you really are, there is going to be evidence in your life. There's going to be perseverance. There's going to be victory over sin. 
who's going to be hearing God's word, doing God's word, caring for others, and so on. And the point of this passage is not to look at other people and say, I don't see evidence of Christianity in your life. There may be a place for that at times. But the real application for a passage like this is not for someone else. It's for me. It's for me to look at my life and say, are there intentional acts of faith coming out of my genuine faith in Christ? Or am I someone who claims to have faith but has no works? And maybe you're someone who has trusted Christ as your Savior. You've done the Christian thing, as one of my neighbors once said to me. You've walked an aisle. You've prayed a prayer. You've raised your hand and said you're a believer. And maybe for a while you did some things that believers do. But maybe it's been a while since you can look at the acts of faith in your life and see the working of God making you a holier person, making you a stronger believer, making you more encouraging and uplifting and speaking truth with your mouth, reaching into your pocket to help people who have genuine physical needs. Do you have those evidences of eternal life coming out of your faith in Jesus Christ? Or is your faith a profession and nothing more? That's the question that every person who professes faith in Christ needs to grapple with on a regular basis. On a regular basis, we need to look at our lives and say, are there intentional acts of faith? Because intentional acts of faith always result from genuine faith. If you want to know whether your faith is genuine, you need to look at how it has changed your life. This is an intentional act of faith.